I want you again to return to Hebrews 13. Hebrews 13. And just a little teaching this evening showing you how Jesus makes the difference. How Jesus makes the difference. A lot of people you can have in your life, but no one you can have in your life would be as important as Jesus. There's no doubt about that. But in Hebrews 13, beginning with verse 5, let your conversation, and that word conversation being the old English word that means your manner of life, let your conversation be without covetousness. Be content with such things as you have, for he hath said, I will never leave you nor forsake you, so that you may boldly say, The Lord is my helper, and I will not fear what man shall do to me. Remember them which have the rule over you, or are guides to you, who have spoken unto you the word of God, whose faith follow, considering the end of their conversation. Again, lifestyle. Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever, be not carried about with divers and strange doctrines, for it is a good thing that the heart be established with grace, not with meats which have not profited them that have occupied themselves therein. We have an altar whereof they have no right to eat which serve the tabernacle. For the bodies of those beasts whose blood is brought into the sanctuary by the high priest for sin are burned Outside the camp, wherefore Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people with his own blood, suffered outside the gate. Let's pray. Uh, Father, we are so happy to be able to look into the scriptures. Every opportunity is an opportunity for us to gain nearness to you. And Lord, I pray that you would fill my heart with wisdom and understanding. So that as the word of God is taught, you would give us ears to hear. Let us be edified. Let us grow in grace and in knowledge because we know that the greater one lives inside of us. In Jesus' mighty name, amen, amen. This particular chapter has begun with a number of topics that I'm not going to address However, the book of Hebrews itself deals with the priesthood of the believer, the priesthood of Christ, his role as the sacrifice for all of us. Now, Paul, who I take to be the author of this book because of its language, I believe is now turning our attention to an even greater aspect with regard to who Jesus is. Now he says in verse 5 that our conversation should be without covetousness. We know that covetousness has to do with wanting what is not already in your possession. And Paul makes it very plain that we should have a lifestyle that does not induce in us covetousness. We typically see what other people have and then we want it. So that means we have to not only govern what our eyes see, but then govern our motives inside us once we see something that belongs to another. There are several instances of this in Scripture where people fail to do so. God said to Adam and Eve, you can eat of every tree, 
Eve saw the fruit. As the Bible says, it was pleasant to the eyes. She reached for it. She devoured it. Let's not forget Achan's sin. They wandered into a village that they were going to attack, and the Israelites were to destroy it. But Achan noticed that there was a bar of gold and a beautiful Babylonian garment. And he thought to himself, that garment would look a whole lot better on me, and that gold would do so much better in my pocket than under the ground here. And he stole it and put it up under his military dress or whatever he was wearing. And when he got back in ranks with the soldiers and marched back to camp, nobody knew that he had taken what he had taken until God discovered it and manifested it as they were casting lots. We need to pay attention to the fact that when we go after things that God doesn't want us to have, that he sees when we come into possession of it. And if God desires, he can manifest it and reveal it to others. This is why the scripture says in verse 5, be content with such things as you have. Now let's ensure that what we have in our possession can produce the contentment that we need. I think the Bible tells us to dwell with the spouse of our youth. You know, we shouldn't be trying to change them as often as we change a cup of coffee or a pair of pants. The Bible makes it very plain that the things that we do have are not supposed to become the possession of our heart. The scripture says where a man's heart is, there his treasure is also. To be content with what you have reminds us of Paul saying, I've learned to be content in whatsoever state I'm in, whatever the condition. Now, if you've ever been poor, I don't know that you would ever say you were necessarily content being poor. I don't know that I've ever met anyone that was content with being poor. But in your poverty or in someone's poverty, the contentment that Paul is speaking of, I think, has more to do with delighting oneself in God, not in the possessions. When I took that trip to Kazakhstan and I was staying with a family, the, uh, the wife didn't have in her kitchen all the different things that we have. In fact, I don't even know why we have some of the things that we have in our kitchen. I couldn't tell you what they do, but Tiffany could. But I, I was sitting there, and the lady was having to warm up some food for us after one of the meetings, and it was taking, I don't know, an hour and 15 minutes to warm up some food, and we already had a late service. And so I was sitting there watching all of this, and the whole time I'm sitting at the table as she's getting the food together, and we're having a conversation going back and forth, and I thought to myself, a microwave would be good in this place. And I mentioned it to the wife, and she motioned to her husband, and her husband told me in broken English about some French article he read that if you have a microwave in your house and you use it, that the microwaves that come out of that, the radiation and everything will kill you, and every time you turn it on, it takes a day and a half off of your life. Well, I told him I should have been dead a long time ago. <laughs> I said a microwave is a pretty good invention, 
So my American friend and I, we went to the nearest store, brought a microwave home to him. His wife was so giddy and excited, and she plugged that thing in. She didn't care what he said. Food was going in there, and she was warming it up. But you know, the the amazing thing about it, not one time before we got there did she complain. She didn't complain at all while we were sitting there, and she had to go through all this work to warm it up. I don't think that family lived on more than $125 a month, if that much. But yet they were content. They loved the king. Paul says in verse 5, be content with what you have. And then he goes on to say, the Lord will never leave you nor forsake you. So he's telling you that you can be content with what you have, but specifically be content with the fact that you'll never lose God. In your good times, you have God. In your bad times, you have God. In your deepest valleys and the lowest points of your life, you still have God. David, as we told you last time when we were teaching, he was surrounded by men that wanted him dead. They wanted to stone him to death. Nevertheless, he encouraged himself in God. So be content with what you have. What do you have? You have God. You have the Lord. I'm grateful that we have vehicles, but there are a lot of people in this world don't have cars and they're still happy. I'm grateful that we have nice homes, small homes, big homes, medium-sized homes, but there are a whole lot of people in this world down on the Mexican border and other places across the border that live in metal sheds. And the little kids run back and forth in the street and play like they don't know any difference at all. Like home is a palace. Be content with those things that you have because the Lord has said He won't leave you and he will not forsake you. If there's any running out of this relationship, you will be the one doing the running. God's not going to leave you. He's not turning his back on you whatsoever. And because of that, with boldness, we can say, I have God as my helper. That's that's pretty good stuff to to know because. There's never been anybody in life who hasn't needed help. The most self-sufficient person, the the one who's a a true renaissance man or woman who can do this and do that will always need someone to help them. Now, people will let you down. They'll tell you they'll come by and they don't come by. They'll tell you they'll call and they don't call. They say they'll help you with this and don't help you with that. But when it comes to the king, if God has made a promise that he will aid you or assist you, he gives his word and you can bank on his word. And because you have God in your corner, you don't have to be afraid of what people say they're going to do to you. This is why some kids, when they're little and they go to public school, some kids are terrified of going to school because somebody said, well, you know, Friday coming up and I'm going to meet you out there in that schoolyard and it's going to be you and me. And then, I mean, that little kid is dreading the coming of Friday. I mean, Thursday night, they're faking like they're sick, so mom and dad will let them stay at home. But the person who realizes that I've got God in my corner knows that greater is he that's in me than he that's in the world. They know that if God is for us, who can be against us? The Lord is our helper. I needed the Lord plenty of times with two older brothers. I mean, they got me out of a lot of trouble, but they brought a lot of trouble into my life. I can't say that 
some of it wasn't self-inflicted. I think I told you before about the times when my brothers would do stuff they weren't supposed to do. Then I'd mosey down there and tell mom and dad what they did. And then my older brother Rick would say something like, well, you know, mom and dad are going to have to go shopping eventually. I said, oh, you ain't got to worry about that. I'm not afraid of you. You know, I'd say something like that. And then that day comes where mom and dad would, would go shopping, and I'd be begging them to take me with me. They'd say, oh, no, you stay here with Anthony and Rick. They'll look after us. I said, no, 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 you, you please take me. Take me with you. Don't, don't leave me here. Don't leave me, please. They said, no, you're going to stay right here. And then they'd say to my brothers, look, don't you put your hands on him. I'm telling you, when I get home, if you put your hands on him, I'm going to deal with you. Sure enough. I'd go into that kitchen, they'd walk out the door, get in the car, back out the driveway, and I'd just kind of follow them from one window in the kitchen, looking out the other window, watching as the car went out and backed out and turned. And then the whole time it's backing out, I could hear my brothers in the background saying, the car is almost gone. It's almost gone. Yeah. And, 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 then, and then there was trouble in the land afterwards because, I mean, they let me have it. They did. I told my mother, you don't know the abuse you two put me through by leaving me with, with my older brothers. But the good thing is, I had God as my helper. God is my helper. I didn't grow up uh, crazy. I didn't grow up needing a psychologist or a psychiatrist. I wasn't somebody that grew up thinking that God didn't care anything about me because I had brothers that were rascals. I just knew that if I had God on my side, he'd preserve me. And he did. In every bit of trouble all over this planet, the hand of God has been with me to keep me even when there was trouble coming from a variety of different directions. And God will do that for you. And God has done that for you. So Paul tells us then to remember those that are speaking the word of God into our lives. They're not teaching us how to build a Roman platform. They're not teaching us how to build an ancient Roman wheel. They're not teaching us how to lay the brick in an ancient Roman road. But the ones that are speaking spiritual life into you. He said, remember them. Think about them. Pray for them. And then he even goes so far as to say the ones that are doing so should live the kind of life that you can imitate. They should believe God in such a way that you should imitate. There's nothing worse than having a teacher or a minister whose lifestyle is contrary to what they teach. Or if they teach nothing at all and live a life that's wholly in line with nothing at all, that's even worse. But Paul is showing us here that if someone is going to remember a leader and the faith and the word that is proclaimed, there needs to be a modicum of respect for that person that's leading. Remember this, I don't care who it is that's on radio or on television or in a church and you're listening to them. If you do not respect them, you'll never receive from them. I don't care how anointing they how anointed they may be. They may be able to lay hands on all kinds of people and pray for the sick and wonderful things happen and may see multitudes of people saved. But if you don't respect them, you'll never receive anything from their ministry. You turn the channel, doesn't matter if good things are happening. You turn off the radio, you won't have any interest in that person. So Paul says that that person's faith 
should be worthy of imitation. And then he says, consider the end of their lifestyle. How are they living? What's the end product of the way of life that they exhibit in front of you? What do you see coming out of them? Because a preacher, a teacher shouldn't be carnal. You know, a minister has to live a life very often that's more constrained than the people that he or she teaches. I told my wife plenty of times, we, we just about have to quit drinking Coca-Cola just to get people to stop drinking some of the stuff they drink out here. Until I came to Nebraska, I'd never run into some of the things I run into out here with the kind of lifestyles that people live. And I always wonder, what is the difference between how you live as a Christian and how these people live who are sinners? Because everybody does exactly the same thing. Some of the Christians cuss like sailors. Some of the Christians tell foul and vulgar jokes that call themselves Christians. Some of them are as carnal as anybody possibly could be. And then when you call them on it or mention something about it from the Bible, people have the audacity to say, how dare you judge me? But you're a preacher. You're leading folks. You're supposed to govern yourself a certain way. Tiffany and I tried to counsel a minister and his wife one time, and this gentleman was exceptionally talented, but he was out here playing in bars and taverns and everything else and wasn't playing gospel music. He's playing secular stuff. And I kind of mentioned something to him about that. And he said to me, well, my witness is in the bars. I said, well, as a pastor, this doesn't look good for you to be doing. So he said to me, I grew up in such and such denomination and I'm not going back into legalism just because you tell me that I ought not be doing so. Well, I can tell you one thing, you spend 40 years of your life preaching the gospel and you can't find five people that respect you, you haven't been living the way you ought to live, you see. And that's exactly what I saw out of that. So the scripture says, consider the end of their lifestyle. What is it when it's talking about the end? The outflow, the manifestation of their manner of life. What is coming forth from the manner in which they live? Then he says, Jesus is the same. He doesn't change. He's immutable. Well, if Jesus doesn't change, then the way he lived is how we should live. The way he exhibited the power of God is the same way we should seek to model our lives because whatever he was yesterday, that's what he is today. And a thousand years from now, his character will still be the same. We should be that way. I think ministers and teachers should be respectable. I've, I've, off, I've, I've tried through the years. You know, people see me out in town a lot of times, and, and they'll, they'll see me, and I'll have a nice little outfit or something like that on. Then I've had people say, why in the world do you, you always look so nice or something? you got a suit on or you dress pants or whatever. Well, here's the bottom line. There are a lot of people call us their pastor, and I don't want anybody walking up and down Main Street going in any store having to hang their head in embarrassment because they have to say I'm their pastor. See? Yeah, I still believe that a preacher ought to look like someone who's different than someone who doesn't know God. I believe that. always have believed that. That's how my pastor's trained me and, and, and modeled for me, so I believe that's absolutely essential. So as a Christian then, 
If I believe that the gospel is unchanging, that Jesus Christ doesn't change, then it doesn't matter what the culture is doing. I remain the same. I remain the same. And I haven't changed in all of these years. I doubt unless I'm doing a a meeting at at family camp, and I don't even think I've ever done it at family camp, but I I doubt if you ever see me in a Hawaiian shirt and a pair of shorts up here trying to preach the gospel. That's just not me. A lot of people do it. And I don't think it's, I'm not saying it's sinful for them to do it. I'm just saying it's just, that's just not me, you know. But when we've had occasions, of course, I don't mind dressing down like anybody else, but the bottom line is I want the little people and the older people to be able to respect those in leadership, you see. So we teach the little ones, they know, call me pastor. They don't get to call me, you know, Daryl like everybody else all the time. But that doesn't offend me if they do, because that's what my mother named me. See? That's what my mother named me. I'm certain that if we don't have respect and authority in the church, then they won't have it in the classroom, then they won't have it in society, and people won't respect everybody else. There's no doubt. So verse 9 says, if Jesus doesn't change, then we should not be carried about with different kinds of doctrines and strange beliefs. It's better for our heart to be confirmed with grace. So now we see that grace is an anchor. Grace will hold you in place in the middle of a storm. When the adversary is bringing one new teaching after another through your ears, the grace of God will keep you anchored to the truth. Now, in all of these years of preaching the gospel, I can tell you, I've heard a lot of strange teachings come through the church and strange teachings come from other religions. But I've never allowed myself to be removed from the basic principles of the scripture. And it doesn't matter what supernatural occurrence somebody tries to link to it or how they try to give a testimony. Just not interested. If you stand and stay with the book and back up what you believe by the book, then the book will back you up when you're passing through difficult times. The book will back you up. So different kinds of strange doctrines, weird doctrines. Well, what kind of weird doctrines do people come up with? Well, I'm glad you asked. Well... I, I can recall when there was a teaching going around in churches that you should pay your tithe in your church, which is your 10%, but they all also had what they called pastor's offering, and you had to pay an additional 15%. So I can remember pastors all across the East Coast making a killing off of that. God only wanted 10, but you had to give the preacher an additional 15%. That's a strange doctrine because it's not in the Bible. It doesn't have anything to do with truth. I've seen churches where if you want to work in leadership in that church, if you want to teach the kids, if you want to preach the gospel or be an usher, every year you've got to turn in your, your income tax statement so that they can verify that you gave 10% of your monies. I'm telling you right now, that's a strange doctrine, and it's not one that I would ever participate in. 
I've seen instances where people were running around the church and they said they saw gold dust just floating around everywhere. Just it was just in the atmosphere blowing here and blowing there. And I never could understand why if there's that much gold in that atmosphere, why you're not collecting it and weighing it and selling it as bad as the sanctuary looks right now. Yeah. If it's there, I imagine God must be trying to make a profit off of it or help, help, help somebody. But so many strange teachings I've heard. One time in California, there were people running around and in every service they were smelling different types of flowers. And these flowers, flowery smells represented the presence of the Holy Spirit. I just shake my head when I hear this stuff and I say, it can't be true. There's no way on this earth a human being is believing this. And then they show me a video. I'll give you one more. They got into about 20 years ago, this teaching where if you wanted somebody's anointing that was dead and you wanted the power of God from their life, you go out to the cemetery, lay out on the grave and just believe that God's imparting that power to you. It's called grave sucking. And if you can imagine that there were people who were supposed to be full of the Holy Ghost, making pilgrimages to cemeteries all across America looking for power. It's amazing. See? Paul says, your heart should be established with grace. I'm connected with him. I don't need physical relics. I don't need tangible things I can touch. My faith provides me with that spiritual eye that's necessary to see God and know that he's real. That's the key, you see. And this is why he says our hearts are to be established with grace and not with meats, different kinds of foods. In Japan, people who practice animism, they often bring bowls of vegetables and place it in front of the statue believing that the God will come from the hills, come into that hole in the back of the statue, and then rejoice in the offering. Thousands of people believe in that. Shintoism. Practice that. Go into temples and pray to die. I think there's enough stuff going on in this earth to keep us all busy and disturbed, but how much better it is to just occupy our minds with the Word of God. If you train on the original you'll be able to recognize the counterfeit when it makes its appearance. That's the same way the FBI trains people in looking for counterfeit money. Train them on the original. Help them to observe all the details in that genuine dollar bill. And then when the fake one comes around, they'll be able to tell it in the texture and in what it looks like. Paul says here at the end of verse 9, the people that have occupied themselves therein have not profited. Of course not. You go from one heresy to the next, one strange doctrine to the next. I've seen people chasing after God who, I mean, they do. To me, it seems like they go from one heresy to the next because they're trying to find something. They won't be content with who Jesus is. So they're looking for this. They're looking for that. And they're chasing back and forth. You find people that one year they're Buddhists. Six months later, they're chasing after Hinduism. 
Then the next year you talk to them, they say they're, they're looking into some of the New Age religions, the Sikh religion, India, Pakistan. Then pretty soon they're, they're thinking about other religions, trying to get into a, a method of talking with the dead. People are looking for something, you see. And God is saying you don't have to look any further because if you have the king in your heart, that's all that matters. Verse 10 speaks about the altar that they don't have a right to eat from. The Old Testament altar, of course, representing the altar where animal meats were sacrificed and bullocks and lambs and other animals were offered up to God. But he said that these people who still occupy themselves with the old temple liturgical system, they don't have a right to eat of our altar. What is our altar? The cross where Jesus died. He became the the ultimate sacrifice on the cross, dying for us. And people who occupy themselves with traditions that move them away from the blood of Jesus, they don't have a right to enjoy what we enjoy, the benefits that we have. They don't have the privileges. So verse 11 says, the bodies of those animals whose blood was brought into the sanctuary by the high priest for sin, I burned on the outside. So the priest would take the blood, come inside the tent or the temple with his finger, sprinkle the blood several times in specific locations, sometimes dab a little bit of the blood on the altar of incense, but the carcass of the animal would be taken outside of the camp and then burned. Sometimes the organ, sometimes the entrail, sometimes the fat would be burned. And the reason for that is the Lord said the life of the flesh is in the blood. So the life comes into the house of God. The life comes into the tabernacle because the house of God represents the life of God. And in a church, there should be a manifestation of the life of God. How do we know God is alive? By how he animates himself through us. See, back in the 60s, when people were saying God is dead, you know why they were saying God is dead. They went to a church. They walked into that church and it was dead. They say, well, these folks are supposed to be his body. I've gone. I've seen God. God is dead. His body doesn't have any life. His body doesn't have any movement. But God never wanted us to frustrate our emotions to the point where you can't be excited about God. Now, there were a lot of people yesterday on fire about that Husker Buckeyes football game. Yeah, I, I guarantee there were a lot of people that, that were excited. Some people didn't excite. Their excitement didn't continue all the way to the end like mine did, being Ohio boy. But I can tell you this, that there, there's animation and excitement, but I don't get more excited over a sports activity than I do about God. I'm passionate about sports. I like sports. I played sports growing up, have always enjoyed sports. But the Bible says in his presence there's fullness of joy. At his right hand, there are pleasures forevermore. If I never touch another, another basketball or boxing glove, or if I never touch another baseball or soccer ball or football or anything, I will not be unhappy because I have him. See, I have him. It's hard to keep the life of God down and bubbled up inside of you when it's there. Very hard. It's like, just like a toddler. You take a toddler, you say, sit there on my lap, don't make any noise at all. So the little kid sits there, doesn't move for a little while. Then before you know it, then the shoulder's moving. And then pretty soon the arm's doing this here. 
And before you know it, they're up on their legs and they're looking at the people behind, sticking their tongue out, and the people that are holding them don't even know they're doing all of that. And then pretty soon they're up moving around and bouncing. Then mom or dad might say, now we're going to stop all that. I want you to do that. Then they'll say, okay. Then before you know it, then they're wiggling. And then they're doing it again. And if mom and dad get, get a little harsher, you know, then they, then they swat them or something. Say, now I told you to stop. Then pretty soon they stop for a little bit longer. But after a while, just like Lynette would do when she was little, she'd move a leg, move a toe or something. Because a child is filled with life. And it's hard to contain that life sometimes. And just in the same manner, we as Christians, we get excited about God. How can you not want to get excited when you're worshiping the king? Oh, yes, you put too much water through a water hose, that thing going to flop around a little bit. And if you get full of the Holy Ghost walking with God, full of joy and excitement, something's going to wiggle eventually. You'll squeeze a tear out or something will happen. Scripture said the joy of the Lord is your strength. The Bible is clear the sanctuary is filled with the life of God. He brought that blood and there's a testimony. Something that was alive is now dead so that we who are here can continue to live. So verse 12, he points us to Jesus and said, Jesus suffered outside of the camp to sanctify the people to set us apart so that we would be set apart unto righteousness. So let's follow him outside of the camp bearing his reproach. He became sin who had never committed sin. That kind of person we should follow. You will not follow anyone you don't respect. And if you have a healthy respect and reverence for the Lord Jesus Christ, you will bear his reproach happily. Jesus said, if they talked about me, they'll talk about you. If they didn't like me, they won't like you. So why are you surprised that there's so many people on the East Coast and West Coast that don't like Christians? It never shocks me when our legal system comes out with some new verdict that is opposed to Christianity. Because it is an antichrist spirit that is in the earth that hates God and despises Christianity. What troubles me more than the sinners attacking the church is when out from what's supposed to be the church and who are supposed to be Christians say stupid things. I can go on record and I can tell you, I don't care what the Pope says about homosexuality. He doesn't know God. He doesn't know God at all to make the statement that he made. So it doesn't matter if someone says something from Tokyo or Rome or Tegucigalpa or Ouagadougou, Africa. I don't care. I'm going to stay with the book because my heart has been established with grace. So let's follow Jesus and we'll get to where we need to be. According to verse 14, we don't have a continuing city here, folks. I'm not laying up all my treasures here on planet Earth. One day I'm going to give up the ghost and I'm going to be with the king. Abraham lived his life knowing that this was not the end. Man, left home at 75 for one century, had his wife living in tents. My goodness, or close to a century. I know preachers haven't enjoyed living out of a trailer or a camper for 20 years, holding revivals full time. But to go decade after decade after decade, as Sarah did, packing up all the furniture and utensils, going to the next spot, opening up the tent, laying out all the furniture again, staying there for a little while, 
and packing it up all again just to take all the furniture and the cattle and move from one location to another. So the scripture says, by him, which is Jesus, let's offer the sacrifice of praise to God continually. We have reason to be happy. And that's because God has been good to all of us. And even on your worst day, you'll find that your worst day has been better than a whole lot of other people on planet Earth. Your worst day. Yeah. You get fired from a job and you're belly aching about that, then there's somebody else always wanted a job. See? Live in some country where the unemployment rate is 62%. May have never worked. I still see day laborers when I go into different countries. Watch grown men going down to stand at the corner of some village or out in a field. And you'll see six or seven hundred of them and a man will pull up with a truck and that truck only seat about maybe 15, 16 people, and he just yells for the first 15, 16 people to get in the back of the truck, and you just watch all these men fighting one another just to get back in, in, the, in the end of that truck so that they can work for a day's wage, maybe come home with 30 cents. All over East Africa, it's all over West Africa, parts of the Far East, India. People are hungry. So when I start thinking about a few difficulties that I have in my life, I just turn around and say, Father, I just want to create for you right now a garden of praise. I can give him fruit, and I can worship him and glorify him. And as the scripture says, it is the fruit of our lips giving thanks. Father, thank you for our home. Thank you for clothes to wear. Thank you that we have a vehicle to drive and more food in our cupboards than we know what to do with. Thank you for friends, God. Thank you for people that love you and honor you. Thank you for people that care about us. If you can be thankful, you can create for God the kind of fruit that pleases him. Now, there aren't a whole lot of places in the scripture where God asks for anything. I mean, he told David one time, if I was hungry, I wouldn't even tell you. But yet, here we can provide him with something that he enjoys. We can create an orchard that the Lord himself wants to walk up and down and receive the fruit of our lips. And how barren are some churches because they don't praise him, because they don't exhibit any thanksgiving. They sit through a service bitter, angry, upset, but never think about saying, God, thank you for opening my eyes today. And so many people didn't wake up at all. Yeah, let's stand. Well, let's apply that last verse where we talk about saying thank you to God. And why don't we take, take a minute and just from the bottom of your heart, with your own lips, just begin to thank God for what he has done for you and been to you. Heavenly Father, I am so grateful that you, O oh God, have provided me with a lovely congregation to pastor Thank you for the health that I have, Lord, for my wife. I thank you, O oh God, that we have a place to reside. Thank you that we have people to talk to day by day in ministering your word. Thank you, God, you give me hands that I can lift in Jesus' name, legs that I can walk on. I thank you for my eyesight. I thank you for my ears. I thank you that I have a mouth and a tongue with which to praise you. If I had a thousand tongues, I could not praise you enough, O oh God. 
Thank you, Lord, for allowing me to see your creation. Thank you for allowing me to wake up day after day and to enjoy the fullness of your blessings and your goodness. Thank you for being God to me, for being a friend to me, for loving me, letting me experience, oh God, who you are, for letting me get to know you more and more, how we worship you and love you and honor you, almighty God. The mighty name of Jesus, our doctor, our lawyer, You've been everything we've needed, oh God. The mighty name of the Lord Jesus. The name of the Lord Jesus. The name of the Lord Jesus. Thank you, God. Oh, you're wonderful, God. Thank you, Lord God. Thank you, Lord. Oh, my. If you can remember this song, help me with this one. Jesus, 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 there's just something about that name, Master, Savior, Jesus, like the fragrance after the rain, Jesus, 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 let all heaven and earth proclaim kings and kingdoms will all pass away but there's something about that name kings and kingdoms kings and kingdoms will all pass away but there's something about that name. Amen. Amen. Isn't that true? Oh, it's a lovely name, folks. It's a lovely name. It's a powerful name. What a beautiful name it is. Amen. What a beautiful name it is. Well, we love you, folks, and we expect to see you again on Tuesday. We want everybody to make sure they keep warm this evening. Start a fire in that house, keep it going, and uh, put a grilled cheese sandwich out there if the preacher comes by. <laughs> Praise God. All right, turn and give somebody a handshake in the name of the